the the tragic and comic masks, the sad mask or the laughing mask. Um, there, you you really still have two choices in life: to to be bitter or sort of to laugh, acknowledgement of your own frailty and weakness, and um, and stop fight stop fighting the pain that the pain's going to come. I mean, you really I just it in in people who are religious and not religious, I can see one of these two paths. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. It's always a pleasure to have Harrison Scott Key on the Habit Podcast because he's one of the funniest people I've ever run across. So I was a little apprehensive to read his new memoir, How to Stay Married, the most insane love story ever told. It's the story of how infidelity tore his marriage apart and how he and his wife Lauren patched it back together. I didn't see how that could be funny. More to the point, I wasn't sure I wanted such a story to be funny. But it is. It's hilarious, and it's wise, and it's exceedingly hopeful. To quote the jacket copy, How to Stay Married is a comic romp unlike any in contemporary literature. A wild pilgrim's progress through the hellscape of marriage and the mysteries of mercy. Harrison Scott Key, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast today. I'm uh, happy to be back, man. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, I love uh, your new book, How to Stay Married, the most insane love story ever told. Uh, tell us uh, what this yeah. book. Tell, tell me, can you summarize <clears throat> what this book is about? <clears throat> I know you've been oh, doing a lot man. of podcasts. I hope you got some good practice. <laughs> that is that is tough. How to summarize this book? Um, it's like, uh, oh gosh, how how do I? I mean, this book is really, this book has become a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, some people look at it as like a, a therapy book. Some people look at it as a, a book on uh, Christian marriage or theology. Um, tons of uh, people who are, are not religious are reading the book and um, they're either really turned off by the, by the religious aspect or they don't, they appreciate it or don't even really notice it. People right. really notice in this book. I think they, they bring a lot of themselves to a book like this. So it was much easier to describe this book, you know, six weeks ago when it came mm-hmm. out um, because it was just my book, but now it seems to belong to everybody else um this in uh the short answer to your question is ostensibly this is a book about uh what it was like for uh, to learn that my wife was having a long-term affair with my neighbor and sort of what happened in the aftermath of that um but in a more sort of abstract conceptual sense it's really the book is really a mystery uh it's a mystery novel and uh like a good mystery there's a there's a murder in the beginning and the thing that is murdered <clears throat> is my marriage and uh or at least i discovered that it had been murdered a long time before yeah. and so the investigation is who killed who killed this thing is it really dead and um who's to blame and what do we do now uh and so it's a uh, there's a lot of urgency in the book it reads like a novel i mean it reads fast yeah it does uh, and uh, that that was the, in some sense, that was the fun part of writing it was trying to figure out <laughs> how to keep people turning the page yeah. for this story that could very easily just be uh, 
it could just be awful or 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 so brutal that you didn't want to keep reading. So that was the real challenge is how do you make people keep reading and and not look away from the train wreck? Yeah. Yeah, I was when I heard that this book was coming and I heard what it was, I, I was I was pretty worried. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> knowing how funny you write and knowing that you were that this was going to be a funny book and yet it was about, you know, adultery and a marriage breaking up and uh, i was yeah i I was worried about how you're going to do that um and if you could if if you if anybody could do this in a way that was respectful to the people involved yeah and i man i i I read it in about a day i mean i i I devoted much of father's day to reading this book Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and uh and it was just so incredibly compelling. Um, and and uh, I won't. It's not that I didn't expect it to have a lot of depth, but it it was just even more depth than I was expecting. So, man, uh, thank you for what you've done here. Well, I appreciate it. That means a lot. Thanks. Well, um, as I said, it is a funny book. Um, you, I've heard you say somewhere, you know, talking about humor and comedy as a path to to truth telling um i'd love to i'd love to get you headed down that track well um because hmm. it, so it can be me, a way of deflecting truth humor sure yeah yeah um yeah i think just humor is sort of my mo that's just that's my base level. That's my factory setting, uh-huh. no matter what it is. Um, I am always going to be that. That is that is my. Uh, that's my neutral. Is funny. That's yeah. just how I look at the world, how I process the world, how I understand the world. Usually, when I'm making jokes, that's that's uh, usually an unconscious way to understand what in the heck is going on in any particular situation. Um, and I'm always been fascinated by um, by the comedy of manners that is modern life, the the things we say and don't say, and uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of church in this book and church is one of those places where we think one thing and, and experience another thing. Mm, we do yeah. one thing and, you know, you, um, you know, everybody loves the pastor, but the sermons are just deathly boring. <laughs> um, but nobody will say a word about it because he's such yeah. a nice guy. Um, yeah. you know, that's, that's where that's comedy's bread and butter is, is when everybody's, uh, saying one thing, but doing another. And that's sort of where I live. I, I, I'm not going to say that that I'm autistic, but I definitely have a strange uh, kind of meta relationship with reality where I'm not always sure of how to be in any situation. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a pretty I think most most people uh, on the spectrum are not have that experience. Yeah. Um, am I saying doing wearing the right thing? What am I supposed to do in this in this situation? And so comedy is always like if I can make a joke and people laugh, then I know that I've sort of found my place in that mm-hmm. situation. Um, maybe I wore the wrong thing to the party, but if I can make a joke about it, it, it makes it okay. So I kind of know where I stand. Um, so that's, that's my, that's just how I move through the world. And so, um, 
so it's it's less i'm going to use humor as a tool to do a thing and it's more of uh how can i tell people this story uh with with the gravity it demands mm-hmm. um but still sound like myself still do it like i mean when this was happening when when i found out um so there were <laughs> there are several uh revelations in the book moments where i discovered something that that i had not previously known um and in most of those on most of those occasions uh, obviously as, as soon as i learned the startling truth about the thing it was not funny at all it was very very far from it but by the time i was ready to tell people whether it was you know to call my best friends or um uh to talk about what happened you know uh, maybe a few days maybe a few weeks in some cases a few months had passed and so by the time i got ready to tell them i had already sort of come to grips with the the strange incongruities of the story and that's where comedy lives is incongruity mm-hmm. yeah so i was when i would you know there are many scenes in this book where i'm relating to my friends what happened and i couldn't help but be funny about it um I mean, it was it was funny. Like, you know, I don't want to um, I don't want to be be crass or flippant. But like when I really sat down and started talking, like, you know, when my buddies asked me, they're like, well, who is this guy that your wife is in love with? Um, I couldn't help but be funny when describing the guy. I mean, he was <laughs> an absolute like dingbat. I mean, I just. Obviously, he had a lot going for him uh, for a married woman to fall in love with him. He had something going for him. And I talk yeah. about that in the book, what she yeah. did love about this guy. But in a in a very different sense, it was, ve- you know, like, obviously, I could have been really, really mean to the guy in the book. And I, I think I, I, uh, I'm i pretty fair with him. I have a couple of I take a few digs. But, but what I'm try- trying to describe to my, you know, best friends uh, who my wife has fallen in love with, like, you have a choice, man. You can laugh or cry. <laughs> you can get bitter or you can um, lighten up a little bit. Yeah. And so those moments of, you know, when some, when terrible things happen to you, and if you're alive long enough, they will. People die. People get cancer. People lie, cheat, and steal. You get broken into. Your house gets destroyed by a tornado. Really bad things happen to every human on the planet. And uh, it's very easy to let those things turn you bitter. Um, but if you can, if you can laugh, if you can see the joke, mm-hmm. then that at least makes it bearable. And so, you know, I remember sitting with with my buddies on the church steps. I'm in a band. I'm in a couple of bands, but I'm in. I go to church with all the guys I'm in bands with, and we rehearse at the church because that's uh-huh. where all the instruments are set up. And so after rehearsal one night. We were sitting out there uh, drinking a beer on the church steps, and uh, and I said, you know, it would have been. And this, I had so many therapeutic moments on these church steps with my band members, and I was like, I was like, I was like, just think of how much worse it would be if the man my wife had fallen in love with was like really, really handsome, <laughs> and had tons of money. Now that that's funny too. That's funny yeah. the whole other way. Yeah. Um, but just just recognizing those those strange incongruities made it bearable and funny. When I found out, you know, at one point when I found out my wife wanted to leave, uh, she couldn't move out because she was about to have a hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. And I talk about this in the book. Um, 
Is that sad? Yeah, that's a little sad. Is it weird? Yeah, it's weird. But it's also funny that I have to now take care of this woman who would lo- who has prayed for my death on many occasions. And, and Wait, I, is that literally I'm, true? Uh, oh, yeah. She said she she had often wished that I would, you know, die in a plane crash or uh, get hit on my bike, you know, like and, and that was funny. She's telling me this while she's in the bed after surgery. Uh, and I mean, you, you, you can laugh or you can cry. I kind of like to do both. And yeah. so I'm laughing. And part of the reason I'm laughing is that I'm not dead. I'm that I'm there yeah. taking care of her. And I'm laughing that somehow like in this wild story, I mean, I have always been the bad cop, the bad guy in my marriage. I'm the mm. loud one. I'm the mean one. I'm the funny one. I'm the one who talks too much and gets weird at parties. And I'm the one who yells at the children and raises my voice and, you know, drags the dog across the floor to put him in his crate. Like I'm the dad, I'm a big bear. And so I laughed when I was taking care of my wife that somehow I'm the good guy in this situation. Like that was funny to me. So there's just comedy running through this whole thing. Well, I mean, you, you say that comedy lives in incongruity. You also say that comedy is a, is a path to truth. I think that's because the nature of reality is incongruity, right? We have all these ways of, of avoiding reality. And then when we're faced with the reality, it it feels incongruous, right? It feels Mm -hmm. when, 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 when we're upside down and we face the right side up, that feels upside down or incongruous. Yes. Well, to that point of comedy as a truth detector, um, Comedy is one of those weird things that works. I mean, all art works on an unconscious level, but you know, when you when you read a sad story out loud in front of people, uh, or just a story, an, a literary story, um, they might applaud. They might, you know, do one of those thoughtful, you know, hmm. They might do that, but if it's a funny story and people laugh, uh, that's how you know something true has been said, mm. and and so. Laughter, in some sense, is this Geiger counter that tells you when truth is near. Hmm. And obviously, there is a kind of laughter that's mean and cruel. And but even laughter that's defensive or deflective—that's a truth detector. Because that's tell when I tell you, um, you know, okay, if uh, my wife and I are uh, in a discussion and she's mad. And it's so obvious that she's mad. And I go, why are you mad? And she goes, I'm not mad. I am so not mad. It's so obvious that she is like, that's funny. She's deflecting. Um, but even the deflection is a is a sort of pointer to truth. Like, oh, th- that's why we laugh at irony, because clearly what the situation is, is not what the person is saying. Yeah. You know, when you're when you're up to uh, your neck in uh you know quicksand and you tell your friends i'm fine you know they say we're going to the bar do you need anything and you're like no no no, i'm fine (laughs) like that's irony because it's funny because obviously you do need help so i just that's why i think for me who is often so lost in modern life and my role as an employee a teacher a parent a husband a friend um I don't I often don't know where I stand, but when I start to hear people laugh, I, I get a better idea of where things stand in that situation. Mm-hmm. And so for me, yeah. it's always been like my it's been my emotional support animal comedy. <laughs> yeah. One way or another, whether it's backwards or forwards, it's a it's a, a, a sign pointing toward what's true. Yes. So, like something's going on. People are laughing. Something's going on there that it bears investigation. Yeah. 
Do you know Beekner's uh, uh, book, uh, Telling the Truth, The Gospel is Tragedy, Comedy, and Fairy Tale? Yeah, I, I wrote about that in my dissertation. Okay, I, I'm not surprised to hear that. I thought about that that section on comedy pretty often as I was as I was reading your book. Yeah, and I went back and look. I went back to look at, at that chapter and was really surprised at how relevant it is. I, I I'd love to hear you uh, react to some of these things that Beekner has to say. Um, he says the comedy of grace as what needn't happen and can't possibly happen because it can only impossibly happen. Like grace is that grace like a joke is that which can't possibly happen because it can only impossibly happen. And it happens in the dark that only just barely fails to swallow it up. And when I think about the the comic, I mean, I'm giving away the ending of your book, but so does the cover of your book that you stay married. Um, in this seemingly impossible, happy ending. Mm, yeah. Um, that I really was, I really thought of the, and, and this dark that very nearly swallowed it up, but failed to, that, that, that couldn't, this thing that seemed inevitable turned out not to be inevitable after yeah. all. Yeah. Uh, that's grace. I mean, that's whether you're, uh, whether you're a believer um, or it's just an interesting idea. It shows you how stories work. Um, you know, I'm fast, always been fascinated by tragedy and comedy and then all the sort of story forms that live in the middle of that space. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I'm most fascinated and kind of what I wrote about in my dissertation, which I published 20 years ago, and I would really squirm to read it now, even though my computer on my standing desk, I use my thesis and my dissertation as a, as a, a platform for my laptops. So oh, nice. some, I'm, some I'm glad you get some use out of it. I know exactly. Uh, but I, I wrote about this idea that, and this was so, this just seemed so uh, perfectly tied into um, to, uh, Christian theology, this idea of stories. I was always fascinated by how stories worked, uh, mostly because I couldn't put one together. I, when I was in grad school, when I was in my 20s, I just, I, I, I loved great stories. I loved reading uh, plays and novels and books, but I just couldn't write one. And so I was fascinated by how they were put together. And I tried to make sense of it and especially comedy. And um, but this idea that so in tragedy, which we're talking about, like classic tragedy, uh, Oedipus Rex, Hamlet, uh, Death of a Salesman. Um, the tragic hero typically, not always, but typically is a, is, a, is a good, noble person. I mean, you learn that in high school English. The tragic hero is noble, but they have some fault. Mm -hmm. but, but they live in a noble world and they're trying to do the noble thing. Uh, and yet they die anyway. They're punished, exiled, or they die like Hamlet or exiled like Oedipus Rex. Uh, even though they're, they're what you would call uh, good people. These are good people mm -hmm. trying to do a good thing. Uh, Hamlet's trying to figure out, like, did his uncle really kill his mom? And how do how does he avenge that and right this wrong? Oedipus Rex is trying to figure out, like, why is there a plague in this city? Like, mm -hmm. the, who's to blame for this? Um, whereas in a comedy, the, the comic hero starts where the tragic hero ends. The comic hero starts with, oh, like, nothing's going to work out. I'm a liar. I'm not a good person. I mean, every comic hero that has stayed with us as a culture is a liar. They're a fake. They're a phony. Um, 
And yet somehow in their weakness, when the mask is ripped off at the climax of the of the Seinfeld episode or the office episode or the climax of the Shakespearean comedy, when the mask is ripped off and they are going to receive judgment, they are going to be punished and exiled or or fired or whatever. um, They're saved Mm -hmm. by an acknowledgement of their foolishness and their weakness. That's what saves them. The weakness is what saves them. The sort of vulnerability is what saves them. And I was fascinated by that, and I still am. And yeah. this idea of like weakness is what triumphs, or meekness is what triumphs in comedy, yeah. and that's where the happy ending is so shocking. And yet, there it is. Yeah, I've always said if I was a preacher, I would have an altar call that all you came down and just all you would do is come down and say, "What a fool I've been." You know, <laughs> yeah, <that's good>. yeah. <laughs> um, I am an idiot. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, since you since you mention it. Um, I'm I'm back on Beekner. He says the good news breaks into a world where the news has been so bad for so long that when it is good, nobody hears it much except for a few. And who are the few that hear it? They're the ones who labor and are heavy laden like everybody else, but who, unlike everybody else, know that they labor and are heavy laden. And it's in that that realization that that I'm not who I thought I was, that I've been a fool, that I'm ready to receive this offer of of grace. And uh and the unexpected, right? Yeah, that's that book. I mean, you can, yeah, it's very easy to read my new book and see what Buechner is saying throughout that his whole that whole book that you're describing, yeah. which is a fantastic book. I haven't reread it in a few years and need to go back and read it. But you can you can really see how, how I've internalized so many of these yeah. things that he's writing about because yeah. he does, you know, um Understanding the gospel just as sort of um, a religious idea for me was always kind of dead and flat. But once I understood like, oh, we love stories because they're tied because they explain reality. And so does the gospel. It explains reality. Why do we like hearing about what happens to people, whether they're fictional or not, because it helps us navigate reality. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's what I love about Buechner is he he shows the sort of connection between st- the forms of stories and, and sort of this religious tradition and religious thought. Yeah. With a way that's not heavy handed or weird or preachy at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, again, relevant to your story, you know, he says that the traffic, the tragic is the inevitable and the comic is the unforeseeable. And uh, yes, that's perfect. And then he kind of finishes that that section by saying, from the divine perspective, it's the tragic that is seen as not inevitable, and the comic that is uh, that's bound to happen. But from where we yeah. sit, it looks like the tragedy is inevitable. And uh, yeah, I mean, it really, um, as complicated as modern storytelling has gotten, um, I mean the the tragic and comic masks, the sad mask or the laughing mask. Um, there, you you really still have two choices in life to to be bitter or sort mm-hmm. of to laugh at acknowledgement of your own frailty and weakness and um and stop fight stop fighting the pain that the pain's gonna come. I mean, you really I just see it in, in people who are religious and not religious, I can see one of these two paths. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, this person is so bitter. Uh I see I see as many bitter Christians as I see bitter non-Christians. So many bitter people in the world uh who obviously have a tragic view of the world that it's all that they they're going to be fighting they're going to fight 
they're going to uh, engage in the noble fight for good to win, and they're going to use their own power to do it, uh, their minds and their hearts mm. and their hands, uh, and it's never going to be enough. And it's, yeah. uh, it's a sad thing to see. But I see that on the left and the right and the center all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to, uh, since this is a book about marriage, I, I'm, um, I'd like to hear you talk about connections between the writing life and the married life, not just the married life as subject matter for, for writing, but I mean, given the fact that this is sort of a, that writing is a, is almost inevitably a solitary and inward journey. How do you bring another person along on that journey or, or maybe you don't. Um, well, you know, with the pandemic and everybody kind of all of a sudden working together, working from home and, you know, uh, most white collar jobs happened, uh, in home. So people could see what it looked like. Um, that normalized a lot of things for writers. Cause that's sort of what writers struggle with all the time. The idea, you know, like, um, when you are home and you're working, but you're, but intellectual work, brain work, whether it's producing a podcast or creating a magazine or I don't know, online sales, whatever it is, it involves a lot of staring at a computer. And then you kind of wander around, you stare out the window for a while, you make yeah. a snack, you take a shower, take a walk, you think about it, you do some more work. And so spouses would see that partners would see that. And it would be, it would look really weird. Like, people realized how strange work looked white collar work, especially <laughs> yeah. when you saw it happening in real time. Um, but that's what writers have struggled with all the time is that yeah. you're sitting at a computer, you're staring out the window, you're wandering around the house uh, and you're, and your partner's looking at you like, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, you, no wonder you haven't written anything. You, you're not, you, you look aimless, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, some of the practical tools for, for a working writer is uh, um, try to write uh, where nobody can see you. Uh, let let there be a little magic and mystery to it. <laughs> Otherwise, they'll realize that you're you're just staring out the window most yeah. of the time. Um, one thing I've that I that my wife and I have done is I can I can work from home a lot of the time in the stuff that I do for the university, um, but. Uh, I really like going away and then coming back, yeah. whether it's writing a book or uh, teaching a class that's online, even a, teaching an online class, like go away, go to your office at the university to do it. You'll like everybody more when you come home <laughs> yeah. and they will like seeing you more. So I think it's really important for writers, especially those who are married and live in spaces with other people is, uh, is don't let it all just kind of, uh, don't let your writing kind of bleed out into everything else you do. Um, Set some parameters like during the school year when our, we have three daughters and when school starts, um, I stop writing at about 7am and from seven to seven 30, I sort of help get everybody out the door. Now they're all, they're 12, 15 and 17 now. So they don't need help getting dressed. Um, but you know, uh, making sure school lunches are packed and papers are signed and making mm-hmm. sure that uh, dog is fed. And if they're all standing around and they don't have to go to school for another 10 minutes, getting them to empty the dishwasher with me. Like, so I, I, that's a rule. I stop at seven o'clock and for 30 mm-hmm. minutes, 
I'm on lifeguard duty with my wife, with the kids. And then as soon as they're out the door, I'm back at my desk. Um, so just, it's good to set up some parameters like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my wife, my, my wife might complain. She doesn't as much anymore because she understands it now. But before all of this happened, you know, she would complain about uh, me being shiftless when I'm sitting here trying to write. Um, but, you know, she didn't complain about the the book checks, the royalty <laughs> checks. It, every time I would get one, I'd be like, see this? This, this is what I made. When this I was is just what all sitting. the staring out the window was for. Yeah. Yeah. Or if I got the mid afternoon naps. Yeah. When I get a check for a magazine story, I'm like, remember when I was like uh, moaning uh, face down on the bed? I was like, this is what I wrote. So, I, And she gets it now and she laughs about it. But yeah. it is a weird, weird experience. Yeah. She now, I mean, her her chapter in this book, by the way, so good. It's the it's, best chapter in the book. It's well, so good. I, I wasn't going to say that, but since you, you said it, I <laughs> that may be right. It's uh I mean, how much does does Lauren write? She doesn't write at all. That's what's so frustrating, man. Uh it's so good. She just like, I mean, this is one of those things that uh, you know, a writer will every, I don't know, one out of every 10 stories, it it's so urgent and so present in the front of your head yeah. that you just gotta get it out. Yeah. And I've had a few stories like that, and those are nice when they happen, but they're not they don't happen a lot. And th- it felt like this had this story had been waiting to sort of burst out of her for a long, long time. Um, but I did joke around with her. Uh, like it took me 10 years just to figure out how to write okay. Mm-hmm. And so to see her knock out such a beautiful chapter, it took very little editing. Um, I, I did a pass over it and I was like, you know, maybe more here, maybe a little less here. Um, wow. but that was it. And, wow. uh, yeah, I was, it was really impressed. She has no interest in writing anymore. So they, um, they didn't give her the bug. <laughs> She's done. No, not she does not have the bug. I, I was like, you know, we could write a funny book on parenting, and we would sell a million books. And she's like, uh, I don't know. I'll let you handle it. She's like, I'd like to stay married, so I don't think we should write a book together. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Um. What you the the day after you your wife sort of dropped this bomb on you that. You know, she was in love with somebody else and wanted you to go away. Um, you got up the next morning and and wrote. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, and you you say in your in your book that you know writing is how you make sense of your life. Um, I, I I can't imagine getting up and writing the next day after something like that. Um, but I. I don't know. That's not a question, uh, but it's a it's an opening for you to begin making remarks if you're so. Well, it wasn't really a okay. Well, I'm going to go work on my next book. It wasn't <laughs> like that. It was more of the this the the habit and routine of okay. Well, this is the now at that like I so every day I'm up uh, around five five thirty and I write for two or three hours um, and I at the time that all this happened, this scene that you're describing that happened in 2017 and I was writing at home then I wasn't writing out at a coffee shop. Um, in those days, uh, we, by then I had, we had a big enough house where I could have an office and stuff. Um, 
So I knew, but really my leaving and going to the coffee shop to write the day after I found out uh, was because I didn't know what to do with myself at home. Mm -hmm. Um, I really didn't want to be in the same space as my wife, as you would imagine, um, because I didn't know what I would, I mean, am I going to say something in front of my kids? Like I just, I didn't, it just didn't feel safe to Mm -hmm. be at home. And so to take my laptop and go to the coffee shop, it was, it, that felt much safer and and more really a safe place. Um, and also uh, I needed, I, I don't think I could look at my kids that morning. I, I think it would have torn me up inside to see yeah. them, to know kind of how their reality was about to shift like mine was shifting. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just felt like this, a safe place to get, get out. And while I was there, you know, I, I did some, uh, I had to, it also helped me think about what to do with this marriage situation. Um, and, uh, but I, I couldn't resist. I opened up a blank document and I was like, this, this feels like a story that it felt like a novel that suddenly I had woken up inside of like, uh, you know, Kafka, he woke up as a roach. I woke up (laughs) as a man who had been uh, cheated on in, in the middle of this happy family, like really happy, normal, healthy family clearly was not as happy and healthy as I thought. Uh, And so immediately I was like, this is a story. So I started writing these notes out. Um, even though I didn't know what it was, I mean, I didn't know know if anything would come of this. This was literally just me. Like it was almost like talking to a friend about what was happening right then. That's really what it was. It was fiction that you were writing, correct? I mean, you, you were, you were writing a story in which you have to understand the motives of, of the, the characters. Is is that what you were, do I understand that correctly? There was a, yeah, Yeah, I mean, it was not a diary entry. It was, it was something else. Right. It, well, um, I think to the idea of writing this as nonfiction seemed so remote. Like that didn't even seem like a possibility mm-hmm. because I had just had, uh, you know, my wife had just red pilled me, you know, without me asking. Um, yeah. and so that, yeah, the idea like that was, that would have been too, if you had, if you had walked into the coffee shop and you're like, Hey, you're going to write a memoir about what you just found out. I, <laughs> I would I would have asked you what a memoir was. I, I didn't even know, even though I'd written two by that point. Um, it was more uh, the idea of fiction is felt at least to a memoir is felt removed and kind of yeah. safe and out here in a world that you could control. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it, the, I originally, and I, and I, I still wonder like, what if I had written this as a novel? You know why I didn't, the real reason I did not write this as a novel, um, is because it was so close to home. Even if I had changed circumstances of the book, um, and changed the names and had people live in a different city. Uh, I knew that if I had done that, people would say, people would wonder, did this really happen? Mm-hmm. And we would both be put back in a position of covering up the truth. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I do not, I'm so sick of hiding and, and keeping things hidden from people. Like once I, when I, you know, I did keep my wife's uh, affair and our marital implosion uh, secret from lots and lots of people the first time it happened, including the children and that was really exhausting. I don't, I don't, I'm not very comfortable. I'm, I'm honest to a fault. I can't really care. I have no, 
I have no places to carry extra baggage on. Mm. I just don't have any hooks or cubby holes like some people do. And so I realized, oh, I've got to tell this story. I cannot cover it up, change names, put it in a different city. I just need yeah. to tell this story because yeah. I'm really tired of keeping things secret. Uh, I know you need to run in just a minute. So I, I wanted to ask you uh, maybe one last question, and that is um, you you talk about – you mentioned briefly in your book that that you think most divorces involve a failure of imagination. Um, can you tell me more about that? Um, as I mean, I, I'm sure there are people listening to this conversation who have their own mar- marital struggles and maybe don't see a, a way yeah. forward. Well, let me first say, you know, I do talk in the book in the last chapter about, you know, um, that, yeah, sometimes divorces have to happen. We know mm-hmm. this. This book is not um It's not really an anti-divorce book. Uh, There are situations with addiction and abuse, obviously, infidelity, um, violence. There's a lot of reasons, uh, good reasons for marriages to end. And I don't think any wise religious or non-religious person would disagree with that. Sure. Um, However, uh, the real question of this book is um, just because... I have a warrant for this marriage to end. Does that mean it should? Mm -hmm. And, you know, like my wife thought, honestly, she thought I was going to be so happy to find out she was having an affair and in love with someone else. She thought I would be like, yes, I am free. Mm -hmm. She thought I was miserable as she was and that I would happily hand her the keys to half of half of our belongings and the keys to half of the custody and, and say, this is great. Like she really thought that. Um, and so the, the, yeah, the book is, is um, it's a, it's a, it's a hypothesis. It's an experiment of, I didn't know how this book would end when I started it. Um, I, uh, and I'm going to, I'll answer your question, but I really didn't know how this book would end. Cause I was in the midst of living it as I started sort of taking notes and writing some stories and trying to tell, articulate the story for this sort of imaginary reader who was out there, sort of like a therapist, sort of like a stranger, sort of like a friend. They're all just kind of hovering out there in the space in front of my eyes. And so I'm trying to tell them the story and articulate what happened. And I, I'm one of those people out there. The the Harrison in my head is sort of out there in the audience listening. So I really didn't know how this would end. Um, but one thing I discovered as I was writing this, and that I discovered as I was as I would speak to my wife about her experience, is uh, so much of uh, you can think yourself into a corner when you're married. You can convince yourself that your spouse would be happier married to somebody else. You can convince yourself that you'll never be happy again with them, that they'll never look at you or that you'll never look at them the way you used to look at each other, Uh, that sex will never be as good as it once was, Um, that you will be, that every day henceforth is going to be worse than every day that has come if you stay married. And um, I found that you know the the old uh tim keller meme that's been going around for the past few months where he says you know he's quoting somebody else who says you know my wife has been married to five men and they're all me 
Um, and I really do believe that, that, um, you know, you might marry your soulmate, but you're not going to, your souls aren't going to stay mated for very long because when two people are married, when they're in close quarters and they're trying to navigate existence together, um, you become each other's greatest potential enemy. Mm-hmm. And so no matter how soulmate, soulmated you are, I, you, you know who I hear talk about soulmates the most? Poets who have been married like three and four times. <laughs> people talk yeah. endlessly about soulmates. And I'm like, bro, I don't think you know what that is at all. I think you're just meaning, I think you're just thinking somebody that you're really simpatico with and you would also like to have sex with them. That yeah. seems what they, most people mean by soulmate. <laughs> so, um, so for me, it's like realizing, like when I say most, most divorce in my experience is a failure of imagination. It's because you have to be able to think um, like I had to remind myself of good times. Mm-hmm. Like when, when I was at things were at our darkest and I talk about this in the book, I went out and got, you know, this giant box of photographs that we kept under our bed and just pulled them out just to remind myself that there were so many happy times and they weren't all in the first year of marriage mm-hmm. or in the first year of dating that mm-hmm. we had happy times a year ago. We had happy times that Christmas where she was texting this guy and they were kind of in a relationship already. And yet I'm looking at these pictures and I, and I'm like, these were, this was not an unhappy family. My wife was doing something at the time that was very dangerous and uh, clearly putting our family at risk. But I look back at these things. I'm like, these are, there's so many happy memories here. And so just trying to remember like, okay, well, we had happy memories Maybe that means we can have more happy memories. You also have to get over the fact like humans change so much. And it was so easy to hate my wife when all this went down and just reminding myself like that she went through periods where she hated me. Mm-hmm. And I think she was changing in that when she, she got really mad when she realized I did not want to kick her out. That I told her she could leave, but I wasn't going to make her leave. She got so mad. She wanted me to be so mad at her yeah. uh, to make it easier, whether it meant yeah. my becoming violent or burning all her. If I burned all her clothes in the yard, it had been real easy for her to leave. Yeah. Um, but I didn't. I cut the grass. <laughs> And even that was funny. I'm like, here you leave right now. I'm cutting the grass. <laughs> I just found out that you're in love with somebody else. And you know what? I'm just cutting the grass. Like, it's just, I think that you have to, that both partners have to realize um, it can be better than it is when it's at its worst it really can be better and it but it takes you both you can't think your way to better because it's two of you who have to do it and that's why therapy uh not just therapy but talking with friends uh being open and honest with each other but therapy is so good at giving you a neutral place to turn to your partner and say things and you because there's a third person there it's very hard to fight because you don't want mm-hmm. to be embarrassing in front of this other person. Yeah. Uh, they're it's so helpful at helping you see things that you did not know about your partner that would be really good for you to know. Yeah. Uh, my will give me so many more compliments in therapy. It's awesome. Like she never compliments anybody. She's just not that kind of person. I mean, she does sometimes she definitely, she's, she can be very sweet to our children, but she's not effusive with, with compliments to people. 
but like sitting there in therapy, she would say something like about like what this one particular moment when she, you know, really wanted to have sex. And she said that. And I was like, say more, Uh, you know, like, gosh, this is such great. It felt so good to realize that there was a point at which my wife really wanted to have sex with me recently. And I'm like, you know, you gotta like find a way to tell me, like maybe there can be a, a signal, you know, you tell me you're here. Um, that, that's what's so good about therapy is I have seen so many different sides of my wife in therapy that I would not get to see when when we're just sort of falling into our ruts of being mm-hmm. too old married in the house. Um, that's the that's the part of the imagination is cultivating and remembering um, new possibilities. You know, there's so much in the Bible about, um, you know, if, if you know, if, if God can, um, you know, get the the uh the sparrows all their food you know what can he do with you if he if he dresses up the lilies like this what can mm-hmm. he do with you um he can make these this valley of bones dance again and uh that's what's so beautiful about about the gospel and what's so beautiful about people who choose to smile in the face of tragedy uh is the hope that's that's there um so it's easy to lose hope in a marriage man it is so easy but this story if it gets out hopefully people can see it and go damn like that's a pretty bad marriage uh and they made it out um and i hope it can give people hope man my friends music art my children my dog so many things gave me hope through these dark dark moments well uh harrison i think Anybody who reads this book is going to feel a lot of hope. I know it gave me hope. So thank you, and um, thanks for being here. I hope we get to talk again soon. I appreciate it, uh, Jonathan, Um, and uh, let's do it again. I love this show. Great. Thanks, man. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.